Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 26. Judas is just taking that, taking that sop of bread that was dipped into the sauce at the Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper. Jesus had just identified him as a traitor. And I'm assuming from John 12 verse 30 that Judas hightailed it out of the Last Supper and was went back to the high priest so he could continue to tell them how he was going to betray Jesus. So the Lord's Supper is now continuing here in verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take and eat it. This is my body. Now there's four accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper in the Scriptures. There's one here in Matthew 26. There's one in Mark 14. There's one in Luke 22. And Paul himself actually talks about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. He said it was he received from the Lord uh, about the Lord's Supper would he passed on to his readers. So we can read the different parallel versions, which I'm not going to do because there's not a lot added. There's one thing in Luke that's added. There's two cups. Luke chapter 22, verse 17, Jesus took a cup and divided it amongst themselves and says, I'm not going to drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it again with you. But other than that, the situation is, uh, the, the accounts are pretty parallel. There's not a lot of extra details one way or the other. Now, I need to mention that the Gospel of John does not have the events of the Lord's Supper, probably because it was so well known when he was writing his Gospel. He didn't, he didn't feel like it was necessary to give another recounting of the events, but John does have a lot of events that happened before the Lord's Supper that are not in the Synoptic Gospels, for example, in John 13, and the events after the Lord's Supper in John 14 through 17. When we get to the Gospel of John, we'll go over all of that stuff. Now, Jesus says here that... As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it. Blessing of bread. Well, actually, the Greek doesn't have bread as a direct object of blessing. That is something that we sort of add to it. The Holman Christian Study Bible here assumes that the bread is blessed, but actually things are not blessed. God is blessed or people are blessed. If we bless God, we're praising him. If God blesses us, he's making us happy with something. That's what blessed means is happy. So that's a tradition that has sprung up. It's not really... They said a blessing before the meal. That's the best way to put it. He said, take and eat it. This is my body. Now, of course, volumes of theological works have been written dealing with the controversy of the Lord's Supper. I'm just going to say right now, there's basically three views. There's the real presence view, which is divided into the physical presence view and the spiritual presence view. The physical presence view is that Jesus' body is actually there in the bread and wine. And that's divided, subdivided into two more parts. The Catholic transubstantiation view, which says that the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus physically, actually, except we don't get to participate in the accidents, the feel, the smell, and so forth. The Lutheran view of the real presence, of the real physical presence, is that Jesus' body is with the elements, although they don't like that term, consubstantiation, but the idea is, is that the elements are, that Jesus' body and blood are somehow inter uh, above, behind, beneath, and under the elements. I personally think that the Catholic and Lutheran views of the real physical presence of Jesus' body and blood in the communion were promulgated by theologians who had entirely too much time on their hands. But there's another real presence view. It's the real spiritual presence of Jesus in the communion, not the real physical presence, but the real spiritual presence. And that was the position taken by John Calvin, and that's the position I take. So I assume it must be right, hopefully. And then there's the so-called memorial view, which is attributed to Zwingli during the Reformation, although Zwingli, it's not really clear that Zwingli actually believed in this, and which is that the Lord's Supper is merely a memorial 
a celebration of what Jesus did in the past, but that Jesus, Jesus is not especially present at that time. I reject that. I think that Jesus is actually present there at that time. As we go through this account in Matthew, the communion, I'll show you where it says Jesus is going to eat it with us in a new way. I think that refers to the spiritual presence. But at any rate, he says, take and eat it. This is my body. Now, this is my body. That is That, of course, had a, there was a huge controversy in the Reformation over that this is my body. Zwingli and Luther got together and argued over what that meant, and Luther kept saying, this is my body, and he pointed to it. This is my body, therefore, by golly, the bread is, is my body. Well, I like Luther somehow forgot what a metaphor was. I don't know. I think Luther was off base there completely. So at any rate, I'm going to take this saying that this is a symbol of, the bread is a symbol of his body, not his actual body. I do not, however, take a memorial position. I believe that Jesus is there spiritually in the midst of this communion. Now, Jesus says, or Matthew says, as they were eating, we just assume that's the Passover meal. However, there's a lot of scholarly debate over what the eating was. Was it an ordinary meal or was it the Passover lamb? Was it just the lamb part or was it the, other, the ordinary parts of a meal? I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to, I'm going to assume they ate a lamb in the context of the meal. It's not a problem that concerns me one bit. Now, to me, it's surprising that the first Lord's Supper should be accompanied by such sorrow. You know, later on, the Lord's Supper was noted for being a time of festivity, a time of joy, a time of happiness, unlike the present-day tradition in American Protestant churches where everybody gets real solemn and they look for everybody's sins. They look for their own sins in their heart, which is totally contrary to... It's supposed to be a love feast, and what is a feast? It's a festival. It's a time of joy. There's a million things that can be said about how tradition has screwed up the Lord's Supper. In fact, I've got a video on that in my Pretty Good Bible Studies series of YouTube videos under House Church, the Lord's Supper. You can check that out uh, if you so desire to see some more interesting stuff about the Lord's Supper that violates our American church tradition. Or I should say our American church tradition violates the New Testament pattern on how the Lord's Supper was done. But at any rate, this first Lord's Supper might not have been as happy as the, as the later ones turned out to be because they were eating with someone, they had started to eat with someone who was going to betray Jesus, namely Judas. Jesus had predicted that he was going to die, and they knew that he was going to die. So that would have been pretty sobering, I think. Now, he took bread and broke it. When did he do this? This was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, Passover was on Thursday the 14th, according to the majority view. That means they started eating that night, which at night the Jews' calendar rolled over to the 15th. And that was technically the first day of the unleavened bread. That's when they were eating. Remember that Passover was the first day, seven days afterward, was the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, as, as per the Mosaic Law. Now, because this was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there was no other bread to be had in Jerusalem except unleavened bread, because that's what they did. The Jews, of course, were supposed to purge all leaven from the house. This is in Exodus 12, 15 through 20, Exodus 23, verse 15, and Exodus, Exodus 34, verse 25. So there was clear legal commands that they were supposed to purge all the leaven from the house, and so obviously they had unleavened bread. But now the next question arises is, then, well, then should we have unleavened bread in today's Lord's Supper? Now I'm going to give you an argument in favor of it. This is from Adam Clark, but then I'm going to disagree with Adam Clark and say, no, I don't think that it's necessary that we have unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper. But let me give you the argument in favor of the proposition that Christians today should use unleavened bread in today's Lord's Supper. Quote, 
Now, if any respect, and again, this is a quote from Adam Clark, quote, Now, if any respect should be paid to the primitive institution in the celebration of this divine ordinance, the Lord's Supper, then unleavened, unyeasted bread should be used, and every sign or type the thing signifying or pointing out that which is beyond itself should either have certain properties or be accomp- accompanied with certain circumstances as expressive as possible of the thing signified. What he's saying is the type should fit the antitype. For example, with the wine, the antitype was Jesus' blood, so the type should look like blood as much as possible. So therefore, the type should be wine and not apple juice. Adam Clark continues, Bread, simply considered in itself, may be an emblem apt enough of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for us. But the design of God was evidently that it should not only point out this, but also the disposition required in those who should celebrate both the antitype and the type. And this the apostle explains to be sincerity and truth of the reverse of malice and wickedness. The very taste of the bread was instructive. It pointed out to every communicant that he who came to the table of God with malice or ill will against any soul of man or with wickedness, a profligate or sinful life, might expect to eat and drink judgment to himself as not discerning that the Lord's body was sacrificed for this very purpose. Clark here is saying since leaven represents sin, when we taste that unleavened bread, we need to think, oh, there's no sin in this bread, therefore I should have no sin in my body. Well, will it not appear that the use of common bread in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is highly improper? He who can say this is a matter of no importance may say with equal propriety the bread itself is of no importance. And another may say the wine is of no importance. And a third may say neither the bread nor the nor wine is anything, but as they lead to spiritual references, and the spiritual reference being once understood, the signs are useless. Well, Adam Clark makes the case, basically what he's saying is that every time we eat unleavened bread, we're reminded of the sinlessness of Christ, or we're reminded of the of the of our sin because somehow leaven stands for sin. I'm not sure exactly what he means is, but basically what he's saying is that if that the symbol is, is important because it leads to something spiritual and, and as the spiritual referent is important, so is the thing that refers to the spiritual thing. And therefore we should use unleavened bread because the original Passover had unleavened bread in it. Well, here's the problem with Adam Clark's view. A lot of things that were done at Passover weren't done at the communion. For example, they stood to eat at the first Passover. They didn't stand to eat at the first Lord's Supper. They ate bitter herbs at the first Passover. And although they ate bitter herbs at the first Lord's Supper, we don't do it today. They ate roasted Passover lamb at the Passover, uh, the first Passover and the first Lord's Supper, but we don't do it today. They dipped bread into that Haraseth sauce, which we don't do today. So there's a lot of things we don't carry over from the Passover to the communion. And besides, nowhere does Scripture enjoin the use of unleavened bread. It should be a matter of freedom for Christians. Most of the time I eat communion, it's with leavened bread. Nowhere does it say we're supposed to use unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper. And if you're going to do something and give some kind of scriptural sanction to it, you're going to come very close to making a law that is not in the scripture. So if you want to use unleavened bread, that's fine, but I I prefer the leavened bread. I think it's a matter of freedom one way or the other. Now, I mentioned something about blessed, where it says that Jesus took the bread and blessed, and and he didn't really bless the bread. He said a blessing to God is what the Greek actually says. Adam Clark backs that up. He says, we don't bless bread. We give thanks to God for the bread. 
And he's got a good quote to back me up on this idea. He says, quote, Blessing and touching the bread are merely popish, popish ceremonies, unauthorized either by Scripture or by the practice of the pure church of God. Necessary, of course, to those who pretend to transmute by a kind of spiritual incantation the bread and wine into the real body and blood of Jesus Christ. A measure the grossest in folly and most stupid in nonsense to which God in judgment ever abandoned the fallen spirit of man. A wonderful Protestant quote for all those Catholics who think that the body and that the bread and the wine are transformed into the body and blood of Christ when the bell is rung and the words of institution are stated. Absolute nonsense. And Adam Clark said it's the most stupid and nonsense to which God in judgment ever abandoned the fallen spirit of man. Hear, hear. But at any rate, this idea of saying something before the eating is the is where we get our custom of saying the blessing before meals, thanking God before the meal, just as the Jews did. And the word blessing, from that word blessing, the English term Eucharist comes from the Greek word that's used here for blessing. Matthew 26, verse 27. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. Now, the Jews blessed wine as well as food. Because, see, remember, Jesus already blessed before the bread. Now he took a cup and he gave thanks again. So the Jews blessed the wine as well as the food. It's not just one blessing before the meal. And John Gill says that the Jews blessed the wine after the meal as well as before the meal. So they were saying blessings all the time. Now, this cup, he took a cup. Well, it would be simple to say, well, it was just a cup, and they drank from it. But the Jewish Passover had four cups, and all four of these cups had certain names. I looked at different websites that give different names to those cups, so I'm not going to worry about the names. The only cup of that I'm going to be concerned with is the third cup, which was the cup of blessing. And this third cup is the cup that traditionally institutes communion. In other words, people think this is probably the cup that Jesus was drinking uh, after they had eat, eaten the bread and taken the wine. It was after the after they had eaten. Luke 22:20 20 in the parallel passage says this, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, "This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood." So this is the cup that establishes the new covenant. It's the third cup we think, at least traditionally, it seems like it was. Luke, by the way, also mentions a previous cup in Luke chapter 22, verse 17, and he took a cup when he had given thanks. He said, "Take this and divide it among yourselves." Then you drop down to verse 20. Jesus says further, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So it looks like he, Luke chapter 22, verse 17 is referring to one of the previous two cups. I'm not sure which. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. For this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now the word for shed is poured out. As Adam Clark says, the Greek can be translated as poured out, which I like a lot better than shed. So the blood was poured out like the blood of the sacrificial animals in the Old Testament ritual, sacrificial ritual. Jesus' blood is poured out. And, the, and when Jesus said, this is my blood, he means the cup symbolizes his blood, which is the covenant. And then, by the way, that's why really, if you can do it, the cup ought to have red wine in it. I've had some communion people put white grape juice or white wine, and I've always didn't like that because we really want, as far as possible, to make the anti-type match excuse me make the type match the anti-type as much as we can make the symbol refer to the thing symbolized as much as possible that's what symbols are for they're supposed to symbolize something they need to be fairly close so red wine is probably the best to drink for 
communion. Now, the word here is covenant. It doesn't say new covenant. The King James translates that, this is my blood in the New Testament. The word covenant, of course, can be translated testament. I think most probably it should be translated covenant. The Greek word is ambiguous, and both covenants and testaments are inaugurated with blood, as the book of Hebrews says. And unfortunately, well, blood, if somebody has to die for a testament to take effect, because a testament is a will, and a covenant has to take effect after they slice the animals up and split them up and walk through the, house, the bloody house of the animals. So there's shedding of blood in both. And so the translators have trouble as deciding how to translate that word. I think the Greek word is diatheke. So anyway, this is the new covenant. It doesn't say new here, but I think it's reasonable to imply that it's new. The King James translators just put the new in there. In fact, I think some, some manuscripts, yeah, the NIV has a note that says that some manuscripts put new here. So some manuscripts actually have new covenant. Apparently, most of them don't. But at any rate, it's the New Covenant, which, of course, is contrasted with the Old Covenant, which the book of Hebrews calls calls the covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Covenant of Moses. So here we have the establishment of the New Covenant, that New Covenant which we live under right now. And Jesus points out something about this New Covenant. It was established by his blood. And the wine symbolizes his blood, and it says that that and, and Jesus says that that blood is poured out for many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. And this is the crux. This is the crucial center of the Christian religion: is that Jesus has forgiven us for our sins. No other religion can do it. No social activities can do it. No charity can do it. No amount of confessing can do it. No amount of penance can do it. No amount of self-flagellation can do it. No amount of religious activity can do it. Only Jesus can forgive us. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wound. We are spiritually healed by his wound. Actually, it also refers to physical healing, too. In Matthew 8, Jesus quotes this, this passage uh, referring to physical healing as well. Isaiah 53:11, He will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquity. Now, after this particular verse in the parallels in Luke chapter 22 and, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, Luke and Paul add these words, Do this in remembrance of me. Paul says, do this, and as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And, of course, those are very common words that all Protestants know as they get prepared to take communion. Now, it's interesting, that remembrance of me, everybody always takes that as a memorial of me, as a, a memorial of what Jesus did on the cross. The Greek word, however, means bring to mind, and there's more than one way to bring something to mind. You can remind somebody of something that brings it to mind, and many people say, or at least some scholars say, that what Jesus is saying here is remind me to come back and eat this with you when I eat it anew. In the next verse, he says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to, in, in a, uh, another day, I will drink it in a new way, in a new way. And so the argument is, is every covenant has a sign, the sign of the new covenant which was just established, established is the wine and the bread. And so this is a sign which points for, uh, forward to, the, to this covenant, a sign which points to the covenant. And so what Jesus is saying here, remind me, remind me of this covenant. You can go back and look at old, old covenants like the Mosaic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, 
And you will see this idea of reminding God. For example, there will never be rain on the earth again. Look at the rainbow, and that will remind God. It will bring it to mind. So that remembrance of me is not necessarily a bringing to mind of what happened in the past. It can be a bringing to mind of what is going to happen in the future. And the future is Jesus is going to drink this with us again. Let's see that in in verse 29, the very next verse in Matthew 26. But I tell you from this moment, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in my Father's kingdom with you. Now, Father's kingdom, what is that? Well, that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already but not yet, as the theologians love to say. Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you when he was standing there before crucifixion, resurrection, and Pentecost. He said the kingdom of God is among you. And then, of course, we have the kingdom of God in the ultimate final state when everything is consummated. So the kingdom of God is here, and it's going to get even better and stronger and more established as time goes on. But now the question arises here, when is Jesus talking about? When will he drink of this fruit of the vine in the kingdom? Now, I've always heard this is going to be at the end of the world, marriage, supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, at the end of the world, we're going to be drinking, having communion with Jesus. And I, I don't know whether I have a child's mind or whether I, because I was brainwashed with dispensationalism all my life and took everything so ultra-literally, but I always pictured me sitting at a table with millions of Christians eating a communion meal. That could not have meant what he meant. How can millions and millions of Christians sit at one table to drink wine with Jesus? That just doesn't make any sense. John Gill agrees with me. He said this is not meant to be taken literally, this drinking. Here's a quote from John Gill. Christ will drink new wine, not literally, but spiritually understood, and which desires the joys and glories of heaven, the best wine which is reserved to the last, which is sometimes signified by a feast, of which wine is a principal part, by sitting down as at a table in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and expressed by wine because of its refreshing, exhilarating nature in God's presence is fullness of joy. Well, here John Gill recognizes that the wine is spiritual, he still thinks that the kingdom of God that Jesus is referring to is in the future. He just says we're not literally going to be sitting down at the table millions of Christians drinking wine. Well, that could be. But again, I ask the question, why can't it be now that Jesus is going to drink with us spiritually? If you're going to be spiritual about the future, as John Gill says, why can't we take it spiritually about the next time you and I take the Lord's Supper? Here's another quote from John Gill. Quote, the Jews often express the joys of the world to come by such like figurative, figurative phrases. The wine of the world to come, a spiritual drink, is two, two of those phrases, in the last days, which is called the world to come. So they explain after this matter, Isaiah 64, 4, neither hath the eye seen, and so forth. This is the wine, quote, unquote, this is the wine which is kept in the grapes from the six days of the creation of which they often speak in their writings. In other words, the rabbinic Jews had a bunch of stuff about wine being a wonderful thing, referring to the joys of the kingdom of God. Of course, all that's pointing to the future. But when was Jesus' kingdom inaugurated? It was not inaugurated in the future. It's consummated in the future, but it was established at his crucifixion, resurrection, and Pentecost. So when Jesus says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way, he's talking about a spiritual way that he's going to drink it. And I say, well, now if you believe in the real presence, the real spiritual presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper, as I do, as I mentioned earlier, that means that Jesus is with us when we're drinking it. That's probably what he means when he says, I will drink it in a new way. Every time you have communion Christians, including right now in the 21st century, I'm there with you, and I'm drinking it with you. You know, God the Father on Mount Sinai, 
had a meal with the elders of Israel. Excuse me, he had a meal with the elders of Israel and with God, God being a spirit. And it says he had a meal. Well, he, if, God, if Moses can have a meal, the old Moses can have a meal with a spiritual God. Why cannot the new, the new Moses, Jesus, have a meal with us spiritually through the Holy Spirit, of course? Why not? And I think this would help explain Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, as something that takes place not in at the end of time, but in the first century. We are the bride of Christ, Ephesians 5, says that we are the bride of Christ. Well, when you have a, a wedding and we're married to Christ, when the church is established at Pentecost, when do you normally have a wedding feast? 2,000 years after the wedding, or do you have the wedding feast right when the wedding is given? If So if you take the marriage supper of the Lamb as referring to the Lord's Supper being eaten at the time of the wedding, well, now you've got a whole different story. Now you've got us now in this present church age participating in the marriage supper of the Lamb every time we have Passover, excuse me, every time we have the communion. Now, this is my theology. I didn't get this from anybody. This is mine personally, and it's like creative theology to me is like creative accounting. You want to stay away from it, but I think I'm right on this, so I just throw it out there for you to consider because right here it says, I will drink it in a new way, which sounds like he's not drinking it in the old way, which was physically when he drank the wine. And I've got some other quotes from these old scholars who say that it's probably talking about spiritually. And now they don't say he's drinking it spiritually in the present church. They're saying in the present form of the kingdom, the church now, they're saying that he drank it spirit. he's going to drink it spiritually in the future. And so they don't agree with me on that. But the spiritual aspect of it, they do agree with me on it. And with a little bit of other my orthodox preterist theology, I come up with the idea that, and also with John Calvin's spiritual presence of the Lord's Supper, I get the idea that we now are going having communion with Jesus there right with us. Celebrating, and notice all the stuff about the Jews had this view of the wine being a positive, a, a joyous thing, an exhilarating thing, a refreshing thing. Well, that's not the way we take the communion today. It's, oh, we've got to sit there and look at our sin. We've got to be quiet. We can't say anything. We can't laugh. We can't be joyous because we've got to see if we're sinning. What Paul was talking about, he says, examine the body. He said, look at the body of Christ. You are not eating and waiting for the poor people. You're getting drunk. You're acting like a bunch of sinners. That's what he was talking about. He said, you know, look after everybody. Don't separate yourself from the body of Christ and split it up when you're supposed to be taking a meal that symbolizes unity. He's not talking about just come up with garden variety sins of some sort. If you want to confess your sins, do it before you get to the Lord's Supper, before you come to church. And then have a feast because it's called the Agape Love Feast. What is a feast? It's not a funeral meal. It's a festive meal. Enough of that. Let's go to Matthew 26, verse 30. After singing psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We're going to finish here with verse 30 with the psalms that they sang as they concluded the supper. The Passover meal was usually concluded with the second half of the so-called Hallel Psalms, according to my NIV study Bible. Psalms 115 to 118 are the Hallel Psalms. Hallel is the first part of Hallelujah. Here's a quote from John Gill telling us exactly how it was done. This Hallel, or Song of Praise, consisted of six psalms, the 113th, 114th, 115th, 116th, 117th, and 118th. Now this they did not sing all at once, but in parts. Just before the drinking of the second cup, remember there's four cups in the, in the Passover, just before the drinking of the second cup and eating of the lamb, they sang, they sung the first part of it, which contained the 113th and 114th Psalms. And on mixing the fourth and last cup, 
They completed the Hallel by singing the rest of the Psalms, beginning with the 115th and ending with the 118th. So they broke it up into two parts. The first part was after the, well, before the second, eat, drinking of the second cup and eating of the lamb. And the last part was after the fourth cup. Now, the second half of the, of the Hallel songs, which they would be singing now here at the end, the second half of, the, of those six psalms, the rabbis themselves say that this part contained the sorrows of the Messiah. Adam Clark says, We know from the universal consent of Jewish antiquity that it was composed of, and he mentions all those psalms that I just mentioned. That just backs up what Gill said. Well, I don't need to refer to that too much anymore. The Jews sang the Hallel because of the five great benefits in it. Number one, the exodus from Egypt. Psalm 114.1, when Israel went out of Egypt, blah, 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 blah. Number two, the miraculous division of the Red Sea. Psalm 114, the sea saw it and fled. Number three, the promulgation of the law. The mountains skipped like lambs, Psalm 114. Number four, the resurrection of the dead. Psalm 116, verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And number five, the passion of the Messiah. Psalm 115, verse 1, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, etc., 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 You'd have to study that a little closer to see the connections here. But the point is, there was a lot of Old Testament history that was in these psalms that was sung. Now, it's amazing to me they could be singing songs at this Last Supper because Jesus was going to die. He told them he was going to die. And he'd also told them that one of them was going to betray him. And here they are singing songs. I can't imagine the mixed emotions they were going through. Now, when I say they, this is not Judas. He's gone. John 13, 30. After receiving the piece of bread, he went out. Judas went out immediately. And it was night. Apparently, that was after the dipping of the piece of bread into the sauce that Jesus and Judas did at the same time, and by which Jesus indicated who was going to betray him. All right, so now we've finished with the Lord's Supper, and we're now going to track Jesus leaving the Lord's Supper, going to Bethany, and then leaving Bethany, or I should, not Bethany, I'm sorry, somewhere on the Mount of Olives, it might have been Bethany, and then he left the Mount of Olives and went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he got arrested in the wee hours of Friday morning. So we'll take that up next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.